Okay, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and uh, it's great to, uh, great to see you this morning. Great to have you with us. If you have a Bible uh, with you, let me invite you to turn to the last book of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 19. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can find a blue Bible on the ground uh, near you. And uh, you can find Revelation 19 on page 1039, if you're looking in one of those blue Bibles. We're uh, concluding our series this morning that we've been in the last couple of weeks called Let's Eat. And uh, we are going to conclude this morning by, uh, by giving you a gift and a challenge. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a few moments. But for now, would you stand with me as I read... Revelation chapter 19, we stand just to give our, uh, our deference, show our attention to God's word as God's people around the world have, uh, have done during the reading of God's word. Revelation 19, starting in verse 1, says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you for this vision that you gave to your servant John and that he wrote down so that we could um, hear your word. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to understand what your spirit is saying to your people this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's wedding weekend, isn't it? Um, Some of you may be very aware that there was a very prominent wedding this weekend. Some of you may have no interest or no, no desire. And some of you may know all the details about the royal wedding where Prince Harry of the British royal family married uh, American actress Meghan, Meghan Markle. 
And uh, it's been all over the news, it's been all over the internet and social media, and um, <clears throat> my wife really wanted to watch the, uh, the ceremony yesterday, so we all, we all watched it together, and uh, there's varying levels of interest, you know, across the family <laughs> in, in watching that. Uh, the, the question that always comes into my mind is, who gets invited to, a, to the royal wedding? Um, you know, um, apparently Oprah was there, um, Elton John was there with his, my kids are like, why is he wearing red glasses? I, I don't know, it's just it's what Elton John does, right? George Clooney was there, Jason Reed's a doppelganger. <laughs> just putting it out there. <laughs> um, David Beckham, my kids were excited to see David Beckham. Um, who do you have to be to get invited to the royal wedding? Well, in Revelation 19, there's another wedding that we read about. And uh, this is the wedding, not of a prince, but of a king, of the king of kings. This is the most royal wedding that has ever taken place. And, and um, in, in, uh, in Revelation 19... There's an angel, and the angel tells the Apostle John, who's seen this vision, he says, write these words down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the wedding of the Lamb. This is the event of a lifetime, and you have got to be at this wedding, because it's your wedding too. It's your wedding too. In Revelation 19, we see this uh, apocalyptic vision, and, and the book of Revelation is, uh, is you know, it's hard to understand. It's, it's like reading a comic book where there's these symbols and there's these images that, that have this rich meaning, and yet often it's hard for us to decipher what exactly is going on. And in Revelation 19, what we're seeing here is a snapshot of the final scene of world history. And uh, the final scene of world history is this moment when finally everything will be made right. And that longing that each human, each of us has in our hearts will finally be satisfied. And it's a, uh, it's a feast. It's a celebration. What we see here is that all of human history is moving towards this moment, this wedding. It's about meeting Jesus. And there are, in this wedding scene, three characters. There are three kind of persons um, in this scene. There is a bride, of course, and there's a lamb, and there's a prostitute. Okay, not the typical characters that we think of as showing up at a wedding. But what we see in this scene is that um, this scene is going to wrap up all of the loose threads of human history and everything will finally be made right. Because what we see is that the prostitute represents the problems of the world. Everything is wrong with the world. And the lamb is the one who makes everything right in the world. And the bride represents what we can be in Christ. In this passage, we see two women. There's a bride and there's a prostitute. And they are both beautiful, and they are both alluring, and they are both rich. But one of them is pure, and the other one is pure evil. And what the Bible is telling us is this, that at the end of the day, or literally at the end of the, the world, 
each of us will be united to one of these women or the other. So look with me this morning at these three characters. First, the prostitute. The prostitute is a picture of the world. Now, um, the prostitute, when I say the, it's a, a picture of the world, I don't mean the physical planets. Um, not the earth. God loves the earth. A revelation is the story of how God is going to renew the earth. Um, but the world is the global human system that resists God. And uh, what we see throughout the Bible, and especially in the book of Revelation and, and a few other places, is that there are really two weapons um, that the devil uses to uh, provoke us to follow him and lead us astray and lead us into sin. And the first is represented by the beast. And, and you see the beast earlier in the book of Revelation. And the beast is, is the image of, of uh, power and persecution and uh, coercion. But in the prostitute, we see a very different tool. Uh, it's not the tool, tool of co coercion. It's the tool of entrapment of, or of allurement. In the prostitute, we see that there's another way to be drawn away from what is good and what is true. Not through power, not through coercion. Um, nobody puts a gun to your head and forces you to go visit a prostitute, right? Um, but the world, uh, the allure of the world entices us. And we are, we are pulled away. Our hearts are drawn away from God and what is good. And what I want you to see is that when God wakes us up to the reality um, that our hearts are fickle and that we give ourselves to other lovers, the image here is so potent. The image that God uses is an image of a prostitute. And what this image is telling us is, um, I mean, what does this mean? Prostitution, I'm not going to go into detail here, is found in every city, on every continent. Um, it's everywhere. The, every, people from every culture, and try, it's called the world's oldest profession. Um, I think that's got to be an exaggeration. I think farming would have had to come first. But, you know, colloquially, right, um, prostitution is everywhere. And we can at least agree on this. This is not the ideal way to kind of get things done, right? In no sense is this the ideal scenario. And at the risk of oversimplification, what, the, what we see in this image of the prostitute is this. She's everywhere. She's causing people to do things that everyone knows we shouldn't do, not through force, but through allure, through her, her allure. This is the effect uh, that she has on us. Now, what does it look like for us um, to, to, be, to be drawn astray by the prostitute? Well, um, to understand, you have to kind of dip back into Revelation chapter 17 and 18. But if you read through those passages... Um, what you see described essentially is that the allure of the prostitute comes in the form of business and work and commerce and building wealth and accumulating things that make us comfortable. Now you might say, what's wrong with that? And in one sense, the answer is that there is nothing wrong with that. They make great friends, but they make terrible lovers. What you have to understand is that... Um, 
is that the way that the Bible uh, talks about sin, we often think that, oh, the Bible's just this kind of naive book that talks about, just don't break the rules. Just follow God's arbitrary rules. Sin is breaking God's rules. And but why is God such a killjoy? You know, why is he so uptight about the rules? But what the Bible consistently says Uh, What God consistently says throughout the story of the Bible is that God wants to relate to us not as a a king relates to his subjects, uh, not even as a father relates to his children, not just as a shepherd relates to his sheep, not just as a government relates to the masses, but as a husband relates to his wife. It's a uh, picture of intimacy and depth. It's It's a far more comprehensive relationship, right? Marriage affects every single thing about the way that you live. It's also a permanent, it's a picture of permanence. Marriage is still the most solemn and binding human contract known to human beings. It's only in marriage that we are absolutely vulnerable and absolutely secure. And that's how God wants to know you and to be known by you. And when you see that that's the way that God wants to know you, then you begin to see what sin is. Sin is not just breaking the rules, but sin is giving our heart away to another lover. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, said, imagine a man, and this man is married, and um, he he meets meets a friend at work, uh, a woman, and they begin to develop a friendship, and they begin to eat lunch together regularly. And as they eat lunch together regularly, you know, two, three, four days a week, they begin to share their lives with each other and they begin to share their hopes and their dreams and their problems and their fears. And maybe they begin to pray together. And maybe uh, their, their company sends them and they travel. You know, they go on business trips together. And um, they're texting each other all the time. They're talking on the phone. And finally, this man's wife kind of gets wind of what's going on and she confronts her husband. And the husband says to his wife, what do you want from me? I mean, you're the one I'm married to, right? It's your name on the wedding certificate. I mean, I pay the bills, I pay the mortgage, I come home every night, what else do you want from me? And his wife would say, what? What I want is you, right? What I want is you. I want your energy. I want your passion. I want your affection. I want your heart. Do you see the point? Many of us might say, what do you want? God, I believe. I believe in God. What more do you want from me? Um, you know, I try to go to church, but you know, it's busy. And what do you want from me? Gosh. God says, I want, I love you. I want to know you. I want your heart. I don't want you just going through the motions. I want to be your lover. God says, I see the way that you look at your work. I see how your work gets your your passion, your creativity, your best energy. I want to be your lover. I want your passion. I want your creativity. Or I see you come into worship and... um, You're present, but you have your guard up. Some of us don't know how the extent to which we kind of, we come in church and we are present, but we are stone-faced and we've got our, you know, we've got the Heisman. We're we're here, but nothing is going to get in, 
right? And God says, I want to see your eyes light up with joy. I want to see your smile. I want to see your face. Or for some of us, it's our kids, and we sacrifice our resources for them, and we protect them no matter what. And God says, I want your love, not just your leftovers. Now, what's wrong with kids or um, what's wrong with our jobs or what's wrong with, you know, some of us were stone-faced in church and yet we walk into the shopping mall and it's, yay, I'm home. What's wrong with shopping? What's wrong with loving our houses? Nothing, nothing. They make great friends, but they make terrible lovers. And the Bible is telling us that when you live for your work or your kids or your career or your reputation or your stuff, you are hopping into bed with a prostitute who will not be there in the morning. And you always wake up alone. How do you know what you've given your heart to? Well, a couple questions, real simple. Um, What do you give your time and your money most effortlessly to? Um, Some of us, we sacrifice all kinds of time and money for our kids. Well, I'm not even going to finish that. <laughs> Another question: What do you uh, what do you daydream about? You know, when you've got a, when you've got nothing to do, when you're waiting for somebody to show up, what do you find yourself daydreaming about? Do you daydream about God and His grace? Do you daydream about that next sale, that next project? Whatever it is you daydream about, that's that's your spouse, that's your lover. Okay, so what's the solution? We'll look at the lamb. The second thing we see here is the lamb. The only thing that will turn us from a prostitute into a bride is a lamb. What do you do if you're listening at this point and you're thinking, yeah, I give myself to all of those things? We might think the response is just to say, stop it. Just knock it off. But our hearts have been swayed by a false lover And our infatuation with a false lover can never simply be stopped. We can't just knock it off. It can only be cast out as it is overshadowed by a greater love. And if we see the beauty of the lamb as he truly is, our false affections and our infatuations for what the Bible calls lovers less wild will melt away. You know the story of Romeo and Juliet? Um, You know the beginning, everybody's like, I didn't expect Shakespeare, okay. You know the beginning of Romeo and Juliet? Romeo is not in love with Juliet. Romeo is infatuated with Rosalind. He is lovesick for Rosalind. In fact, Romeo is trying to catch a glimpse of Rosalind at a party when he first spots Juliet. And after seeing Juliet, his feelings suddenly change, and he says, Did my heart love till now? Forswear its sight, for I never saw true beauty until this night. When Romeo sees Juliet, he forgets all about Rosalind, and when we see the beauty of the Lamb as he truly is, our infatuation with other lovers melt away. What this passage is telling us is this. The only way that you'll go from a prostitute to a bride is if the lamb covers your shame. Verse 8, it says, It was granted to the bride to clothe herself with fine linen, 
bright and pure. The bride appears at the wedding in pure white. Now, how is it possible? Because I know myself, you know yourselves, we know who we are. Um, The image of the prostitute, that is us. How does the bride, how will we ever show up at the wedding and be clothed in pure white? Only because the groom, the lamb, clothes us in his record, covers us in his own record. Some of you have heard me tell this story before. It was Halloween of 1996. I was 16 years old and I was hanging out with friends at a Halloween party and it was late and we were in uh, at a party in Newport Beach and we decided late at night to pile into my first car which was a VW Vanagon. It was awesome and go have dinner at Denny's. And uh, being, I don't know what, 16, 17 years old, we weren't normally out late at night and we're having fun and we're goofing off and and we drive to Denny's, which I think was at Fashion Island. And as we, we drove into the, uh, the parking lot, it's one of these things where there's this long entrance road and like a sidewalk that goes all the way down and you have to drive around and the Denny's is like right there. <clears throat> and we're screwing around and as I pull in, I see this little like pedestrian walkway thing and I drive up and over it right to the Denny's instead of going all the way around. <clears throat> and as we get out of the car, I see these blue flashing lights from the other side of the parking lot speeding over right towards me. And I'm thinking, I am dead meat. Um, I never do stupid stuff like this. My parents are going to kill me. And um, mall cop rolls up. And uh, he gets out of his car as I'm getting out of my van, and he comes over and he looks at me, kind of looks me up and down, and he says, hey, next time, can you just go around? I said, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And he says, thanks, and he gets in his car and he drives away. I thought, what in the world just happened? And I looked down at myself, and it's Halloween. And for Halloween, I was wearing my dad's flight jacket from when he was a pilot in the United States Navy. And I'm wearing his boots from when he was in the Navy. And I'm wearing that little military hat from when my dad was in the Navy. I'm covered in the record of the United States Navy. And the mall cop leaves me off the hook because he thought that I was somebody that I wasn't. And that's a picture of what is going on here in Revelation 19. The only way that you will appear at the wedding clothed in linen, pure and white, is if you are clothed in the record of somebody else. On the cross, Jesus exchanges places with you. On the cross, Jesus takes your record, your sin, your shame, your brokenness upon himself, and he gives you, and instead, in exchange, his perfect record of righteousness so that when you appear at the wedding, you don't appear as a bedraggled, homeless, just in off the streets trying to keep it together. You're clothed in the record of the Lamb. He clothes you in His righteousness. He gives you His record. The love of Jesus is the only thing that will cleanse you, that will satisfy you, that will make you whole. Changing your circumstances will never satisfy you. 
only when you see the Lamb who gave himself for you will you ever find true satisfaction. So how do we respond to that reality? We'll look at the bride thirdly. Who is the bride? Well, we are the bride. Uh, You are not the bride as individuals. Y'all are the bride. Sometimes um, I have guys come and say to me, you know, I'm having a little trouble getting myself into this um, bride imagery, right? Well, guess what? Galatians 2 says that um, we are all sons of God. So we're all sons, we're all the bride, but it's not you as an individual, it's y'all. So I, I don't know, think about it, figure it out. I don't, I don't know exactly how to deal with it. Um, that's the imagery here. Verse 6 says this. The Apostle John is, is seeing this vision and it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. I like that. Uh, the sound of a great multitude crying out in one voice. He says it was like the sound of roaring waters. Now that, it just kind of rolls off your you know, head until you, your head, whatever's the metaphor there. We don't think about it until we think about it, right? What is it, what is the sound of roaring waters? Have you ever been up close to a waterfall? I mean, John lived in a time when nobody had ever heard an amplified voice, right? John is saying, I heard the loudest sound I had ever heard in my life. The bride is the great multitude of people and the lamb Uh, comes out and the wedding scene is set and this multitude, God's redeemed people, they see the lamb and John is saying they were shouting and singing and praising. I've never heard such a loud sound in my life. There is joy and there is singing. It's a feast. It's a party. It's, It's a party unlike anything that you have ever experienced. It's truly a royal wedding. Last Yesterday, we're watching the royal wedding, and um, my boys were not super into it, and they're complaining, and, and we're like, no, we're just going to watch it. And, and one, of my, one of my boys says, you know, the best part of the wedding is the party that comes afterward. And we said, oh, really, why? And he said, because there's food and a lot less kissing. <laughs> he got part of it right, right? There's way more kissing after the party than at the royal <laughs> wedding ceremony. Um, I was talking to somebody this week who was telling me, just out of the blue, we were talking about oh, his wedding, and he was saying that as they were planning the wedding, he said, I don't care where we have the wedding, it'll be awesome as long as there is great food. And he said, it rained, it poured down rain on our wedding day, and people still tell us it's the best wedding I ever went to. Why? Because the party was great. There was great food. It's interesting in the passage it says it's the marriage supper of the Lamb, but we don't really see the ceremony itself. What we get is a picture of the party, the feast, the celebration, the joy. The joy being experienced by the bride. Everyone is celebrating. What are they celebrating? Everybody is crying out and celebrating because Jesus has taken care of our sin. I don't know how you respond uh, to the reality that you are a sinner. Uh, Some of us hide. Some of us run. Some of us do everything we can to avoid admitting that we have a problem. Some of us just absolutely shut down. Some of us just like shamelessly embrace it and almost flaunt it. 
This is a picture of the moment when the waiting is over. We don't have to hide. We don't shut down. We don't embrace it. But we celebrate because Jesus has taken care of our sin. We will feast because finally everything will be right. This, this shouldn't surprise you if you've been here for the last several weeks with us that the story of the Bible ends with a feast. The story of the Bible begins with God providing a meal for his people. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God meeting with his people over meals, over providing for, God's, for his people in the wilderness. God provides manna. He, he meets in the temple with his people over these ritualized meals. <coughs> Jesus' first miracle is the miracle of turning water into wine. Jesus leaves us a meal to remember him by, and he said, I will not eat or drink of it again until I do it with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus will not feast again like he does at the Lord's Supper until this moment that we're looking at in Revelation 19. And so it's fitting, isn't it, that when the curtain is pulled back and God gives us a glimpse of what's in store for us, that it's an image of a meal, it's a celebration. It's about God building us together, enjoying us, being in community with us. And so, of course, Jesus tells us that our role in this divine drama, as we live right now in this period of engagement or betrothal, when Jesus has gone to prepare a place for his bride, and yet we have not yet reached that point, our role is to invite others to the feast. To pick up the ancient Christian practice of hospitality. Our role is to love our friends and our neighbors, not going and knocking on people's doors, trying to sell them something that they don't want to buy, but loving our friends and our neighbors by inviting them to the feast. Practicing hospitality. So as we finish this series, I want to leave you with a gift and also a challenge. The challenge is this, do you know how to eat? Like, not just do you know how to get calories into your body, but do you actually know how to eat? I came across this uh, article recently, a study of the happiest and least happy places in America. I don't know how they measure this, what metrics they use, the least happy city in America is New York City. Maybe not, I don't know, maybe not terribly surprising. Um, you know what the happiest place? Uh, some people totally dis- I disagree with that. I haven't even been, been in New York, but I love that place. <laughs> Statistically, you know what the happiest place in America is? Four of the five happiest cities in the United States are in the state of Louisiana. Now, I never would have guessed that. Um, I would have put Louisiana somewhere around four. I don't know. Like, I would forget about Louisiana, right? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but the researcher writing this article explained feasting is a part of their culture. It's the one place in the United States where feasting is a part of the culture. It's, a, it's woven into the life of the community that this is what we do together that we make time for one another, that we slow down and we eat together. So what about us? 
What about us? Do we know how to eat? I know we know how to get calories into our bodies, but do we know how to eat? I want to invite you to take out your phone right now and go to resoc.life. Like literally do it right now. And I want you to invite, I want to invite you to click on the second swipe to the left, I guess, and click on the thing that says, let's eat challenge. Here's the challenge that I want to uh, give to you as we conclude this series. I want to challenge you to take up the Christian practice of hospitality. And what I want to challenge you to do is this, to once a month this summer, in June and July and August, I want to challenge you to look at a friend from church and invite them over for dinner into your home and sit down. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be gourmet. In fact, it's probably better if it's not. I want to invite you to practice hospitality. And then I want to invite you to, secondly, invite a friend, neighbor, coworker, just somebody who does not go to this church and do the same thing. Okay, six meals over three months. Enter your email address if you're going to join us taking the Let's Eat Challenge. Uh, we're going to send you some encouragement. We're going to share stories of, of how God... This is why we're here, you guys. We're not here as a church to get like an hour, a couple of times a month together to get a little spiritual booster shot to go back and live our lives any way that we want. We are here to love our neighbors as we practice hospitality. Our culture is facing an epidemic of loneliness that has worse health outcomes than smoking and heart disease. Okay, our culture is literally dying of loneliness. What if we took that seriously as a church in South Orange County? What if as a church this summer, we said we are going to love, who knows what God might do as we start to love our neighbors? This is why we're here. If we're not going to do this because we're too busy, then let me encourage you to look at the Lamb who gave himself up for you to bring you to a feast. Um, we want to invite you to practice hospitality this summer, but we also want to give you a gift. You probably saw this huge pile of pineapples on the way in here. And a lot of people already said, why are there pineapples out there? We're going to send you home with a pineapple, okay? Now, why are we sending you home with a pineapple? You know, the history of a pineapple is, uh, is fascinating. Uh, a pi the pineapple, some of you might know, is that uh, the pineapple is a symbol of hospitality. But as I was looking into it this week, I discovered that um, in the American colonies, pineapples began as actually a symbol of wealth and status. Uh, pineapples are exotic. Pineapples don't, do, don't grow in like New England. Um, and um, visitors, um, a, a pineapple was a sign that somebody had a friend that had access to nice things. And they could get a hold of a pineapple. And so in, uh, in the American colonies, it became a practice if you could, people would rent a pineapple for a day. And you would put a pineapple as part of your centerpiece when you had guests over into your home. And it became the symbol of, of kind of wealth and status, but really of who you knew, that you knew somebody who could get things. 
And as the tradition and legend of the pineapple grew, colonial innkeepers added the pineapple to their signs and their advertisements, and bedposts began to be carved in the, in the shape of pineapples. And so what was once a sign of, of wealth and status and knowing somebody wealthy became a sign of hospitality, of welcome. And so we're going to send you home with a pineapple on the way out. You're going to get a pineapple because it's a symbol. It's a very simple thing for us. They're like two bucks each, right? Uh, you don't need to know a wealthy person anymore to have a pineapple. <laughs> and yet it's still a symbol this morning that you know a wealthy person. You have a husband, a lover, who has covered you with his own record. And he sends you out into the world to invite others to the feast of knowing him. I have a friend named Sam. He's a pastor. Uh, he was a pastor at a church in Pittsburgh. And after several years there, a couple uh, months ago, he and his family left the church where he had been a pastor and they moved to upstate New York to plant a new church, much like our family has done in coming here. And um, Sam uh, was out of town. He and his wife were out of town over the weekend. And last night I saw uh, he posted this on Facebook. They'd been out of town. And I don't know if there was somebody staying with his kids or, or what. But he said, we got home. And this woman had washed all of our laundry and folded all of our clothes. And he said, we walked in the front door to piles of nicely folded laundry. And my wife whispered to me, I think we're going to make it here. In the practice of hospitality, something changes. Interestingly, nobody has ever folded my laundry. Just throwing that out there. The practice of hospitality changes everything. It's the reason that we are here as a church. The last thing Orange County needs is one more church of people that show up for an hour a week and go their separate ways and do their own thing. Jesus loves his church. He loves y'all, his bride. He loves his church. And we cannot love Jesus if we don't love his church. So will you take your pineapple as you leave today? And I don't know, put it on your table or eat it or do whatever you want with it. But take it home as a reminder that you have a lover who loves you, who sends you out into your neighborhoods to love <clears throat> your neighbors and your coworkers as we practice hospitality together. I can't wait to see what God will do in our church as we follow him into that adventure together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you did to make us your bride. And Jesus, as we now live in this sort of in-between time where you have said you are going to prepare a place for us and we have yet uh, to experience the consummation of the wedding, the feast. Would you help us to live now as people who have an eye to the future? 
as we walk through our present sorrow, would you remind us of our future joy? And as we think of our future joy, would you help us to turn to our friends and neighbors in this world that is dying of loneliness and open up our homes and our tables to them because you have been so good to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.